Welcome to Purposely Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to hit subscribe. It really matters. Enjoy the episode. To change behaviors, but I'm a big fan of the approach uh, that says that you know, we shouldn't confuse personal responsibility with system levels of responsibility. So for instance, if you, were, if you were to ask me, what is the most important thing that I can do as an individual to contribute to a sustainable world? Well, the first and foremost that I would tell you is to vote because we need the right people to vote the right rules and regulations that define the rules of the game that allow us to bring systems level change. For new generations and younger generations, this is this is fundamental. This is existential because these uh, issues and challenges and negative impacts that they are going to experience. Purposely podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. Yericiano, a very warm welcome to Purposely Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. You're a professor at the London Business School. What's the main focus of your role? So I've been at London Business School for about 13 years now. I do research in the domain of corporate sustainability and responsible business. I teach MBAs, master's students, executives, senior executives, and the last component is that I try to engage as much as possible with the world of practice, with the world of managers, so I can keep my research fresh and relevant, uh, and also to be on, on, on top of big issues that concern uh, the world of, of business. So these three roles, research, teaching, and engagement, is the three main um, uh, um, pillars of what I do at London Business School. And is there a temptation ever been to give up the teaching and focus on the uh, consulting or is it never to be honest i think all of them are complementary and the um the best way to do them is to keep a balance because i think in many ways um keeping engaged with practice makes you aware of the biggest questions that business is facing and then you can bring that into research and study the problem, the question more rigorously, reveal new insights, evidence-based insights, which you can then transfer into the classroom uh, or uh, through executive education back to business. So I think all those activities are very complementary because if you, if as an academic you do one without the other, then I, I don't think it makes much sense because you you don't um, uh, generate those synergies between teaching, research, and practice. So I think it's all about keeping the right balance across all, all those activities. And 12 years on from the business school, do you feel, does your phone ring more often? Do you feel more kind of central to what's going on? And is that linked to the more of a focus on sustainability and ESG matters? I think that's absolutely true. When I started doing 
uh, research in, in corporate sustainability. Back then it was co- uh, called CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility, back in 2008, 2009. It was still considered, even within business schools, let alone the world of business, as a peripheral topic, as a you know, non-traditional topic. Because you know, as business schools, we care more about financial performance, about shareholders, about generating more profits. Um, so when I started doing this kind of work, it was considered a bit on the periphery of the mainstream. Um, but certainly the world has changed dramatically since then. I would say that, especially if we take the last five to seven years, there's no question that issues of sustainability and corporate responsibility are at center stage and will remain center stage going forward. So uh, you see that across multiple perspectives. First, in terms of um, what companies are looking for when they are looking at exegu- executive education programs? What MBA students are looking for when they talk about when uh, when they were looking for elective courses? When they are even selecting the business schools that they are going to join? And certainly, you can see that even with new PhD students, uh, doctoral students that uh, want to go into a doctoral program because they really want to understand more the intersection of environmental and social challenges and corporate responsibility. So I think across the board, um, yes, uh, without a doubt, uh, the world has changed dramatically. uh, And and the issues that I happened to study uh, so many years ago certainly are becoming more and more center stage. And do you feel like companies, or do you see evidence that companies are kind of moving away from that shareholder value model and and much more towards purpose, uh, environmental impact. Is, is that genuine that you see? Um, I think that it is, uh, although I don't want to make a blanket statement about every single company out there. In other words, of course, they're, they're the ones that are going to greenwash. Of course, they are the ones whose commitment is not genuine. Of course, they are the ones that don't really understand what they're doing. They're just imitating others. So I don't want to make a blanket statement across every business. But if we if we if we look at the average trend, right? I would say that yes. And here's the thing: um, despite if we if we we leave aside the moral or ethical implications of responsible business, um, this is this has become a core business issue for the following reason: the mega trends that are driving. Uh, this 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 change in the competitive landscape are here to stay. So, for instance, if we look at the negative effects on the environment, like uh, climate change, environmental degradation, um, deforestation, the loss of biodiversity, and so on and so forth. If we look at the social issues, the the drive for equity and more diversity, and so on, these mega trends are here to to stay. They are not a passing fad. Which means, right, even if, as I said, even if you ignore the ethical and moral issues, which we shouldn't, but let's ignore them for the time being, if you're a good manager, you're realizing that the competitive landscape is changing. The demands of your customers are changing. The demands of your investors are changing. Regulation is changing. Civil society is changing, and that translates into different types of civil activism, uh, that also puts pressure on companies. So if you're a good manager and you look around what's happening in the world, you realize that these broadly defined environmental and social issues are becoming not only pressures on the business, but fundamentally shifting the competitive landscape. So 
if you want to have a business that survives, if you, you want to have a business that thrives within this context, then you have to adapt. You have to move towards a business model that, of course, remains financially uh, viable and financially thriving. But at the same time, uh, you need to account for these challenges. You need to integrate them in the core of your business. And hopefully, in so doing, you're able to also have a positive impact on society. So I think a lot of companies do realize this fundamental shift in the competitive landscape, um, this disruption, as I often call it. Um, and it's a disruption because many businesses lack the skills, the knowledge, and the experience they require in order to deal with environmental and social challenges. But truth of the matter is that not all of them will be able to successfully transition. Some, as I said before, maybe doing this, maybe they're trying to find shortcuts. Maybe that's why they do greenwashing. Others, maybe they're lacking the innovation capability that they need. So they are incompetent to transition. There's many reasons why there might be a gap between where they want to be and where they are. But on average, I would say that most of companies do uh, understand this radical shift in the lands in the competitive landscape and are looking for ways to adjust their business models to remain viable yeah and is there a company that you most admire or is there a, a sort of business action that you've seen that would exp uh, explain a leader in this field who's really embraced ESG? Yeah, to be honest with you, I don't, my, my work, my research work, it's more about looking across companies, across industries, across geographies and across time, not to find the one or two companies to uh, show as examples, but rather to uncover general trends. In other words, to understand what are the, the, the on average best practices that drive sustainable business models? What does it mean to embed sustainability into this proverbial corporate DNA, for instance? What does it mean to generate mechanisms whereby sustainability also generates financial and social value? That's what I said. I mean, I do think that there's various ratings and rankings out there that like corporate nights, for instance, that one can look at if you wanted a particular, um, you know, ranking of companies. But what I would highlight, though, is that even if you get, if you look at the best of company out there, whichever company that might be, we need to understand that we're really still far off of what I would call ultimately a sustainable company, a fully sustainable company, a, a company that has resolved these carbon emissions, that's uh, adequately managing in supply chain, that has reduced waste, that is fully efficient in terms of energy management, water management, and so on and so forth. There's still a long, long way to go. And what we need to understand is that even the best of companies we're, are still in a period of experimentation. There is a lot to learn. Insurance companies, right, these days are hiring climate scientists in order to understand ultimately weather patterns in order to price in risk, for instance. Um, insurance companies were never working with climate scientists before. Um, Agribusinesses are now hiring biodiversity experts to understand what are the implications of biodiversity loss for their ability to to produce and to remain viable. So I think uh, those are very, very recent phenomena. So even if we explicate, if you like, or if we find exemplary companies right now, there's still 
a lot of way to go. And I think what is more important than one or two examples is much more important to understand the underlying trends or causal mechanisms, if you like, of what makes for a good transition. The other thing that I always tell to my students and my executives as well, because I do get this question a lot about examples, is that that we should be very careful because um, as far as I know, no company became a leader by doing what someone else has already done. In other words, Unilever, for instance, that we often mention in this space as a leader, did not become a leader because he was able to follow the example of someone else. It set the example. Similarly, Tesla, when they rethought the whole idea of what a car is, they didn't follow the example of someone else. They innovated and found their own unique, differentiated way to change the industry. And this is what I always tell students, executives, um, practitioners out there, that yes, we can learn from general trends, um, but imitation of examples is not the right answer. What worked for Unilever, what worked for Tesla, it's unlikely to work for you. You have to discover your own unique way of contributing to these problems or resolving these problems through your business model. And just talk to me a bit about the shift from a linear economy to a circular economy, because you do a lot of work focused on that. Yeah, I think it's a, it's one of the emerging business model that give, models that, given the problems that the world is facing, uh, for me at least, makes a lot of sense. And the idea that, well, first of all, um, sustainability, among other things, it's a matter of efficiency, right? It's a matter of uh, running down the resources of the planet. It's a matter of over-exploitation of resources. It's also a matter of generating huge amounts of waste. Think about the plastic pollution, for, for instance, that, um, that makes the environmental degradation even worse. So I think that um, the circular economy doesn't apply to all industries, of course, but to those that it does apply, it's a very powerful idea that allows us to build in these efficiencies in terms of our resource usage and in terms of our waste management in order to address some of these environmental challenges. What is even more important is that now we do have companies that started experimenting with these ideas, redesigning their products, not only for assembly, but also for disassembly. Companies that do not only set up logistics in order to distribute their products, but also set up reverse logistics to take their products back. For example, IKEA is doing this. Adidas is doing this. Adidas is working with an NGO to collect the world's plastic bottles and then uses that to to create thread, to create shoes, for instance, right? I think these are very powerful ideas that allow us to to solve some of these very pressing challenges related to overuse of resources and waste. What I would like to add here, though, is that... um, we're talking about circular economy, which basically means we need the economy component as well. Um, it, it's not just about individual 
companies is about setting up an economy that works as a circular system. In other words, one company's waste might be another company's inputs. I think we're still far away from that because we're only now having at least some more sort of tangible examples of circular business models models that have worked at the company level. But really, we need to rethink about um, many things in the system attitudes, even consumer preferences. For instance, if you think about the fast fashion, there is a consumer attitude that says, for instance, that, you know, I, I'm never going to wear secondhand clothing, for example. And in some, in some uh, circumstances, there are customers that may interpret, you know, a take back program and remake program by a fashion company as a secondhand had garment that they wouldn't wear. Uh, wear. So, in other words, there are, no, there are not only technical challenges to eventually moving to more of a circular economy. There are also behavioral challenges, right? That we would need to overcome in order to to build a more circular economy. And changing focus for a bit, just looking back at your life and your career. So, brought up in Cyprus, would your primary school teacher? have predicted that you go on to be a professor, an academic? <laughs> what, were, what were they saying about Yanis? Uh, Actually, I, as far as I was, as far as I, I can remember, uh, the, my primary school teachers would likely think, would have thought that I was going to be an actor of sorts or some sort of performance. Which you know, teaching an MBA classroom or giving talks does have a um, uh, <laughs> an element of performance. Uh, but I think the sustainability engagement and also the the, the sort of the the more academic inclination came later on in life, perhaps in high school and during my undergrad. And certainly the sustainability uh, interest grew during my, my, my doctoral studies. So it was more of an evolution, I would say. And I don't think it's, you know, I'm not going to claim, you know, since I was three years old, I always wanted to study sustainability because, well, that, that's just not true. <laughs> yeah. So that's how it sort of evolved. So you ended up at Yale and, and also Harvard, you know, incredible academic achievement. Do, supportive of parents, loving family, people willing to see, the, see you do the best and, and achieve the best? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and in my family, since, as we said before, primary school, there was a strong support and encouragement and uh, appreciation, if you like, uh, for the value of education. And that's why, um, you know, throughout, throughout my studies, I totally had um, their their uh, support and encouragement along the way. For them, it was a big deal because I don't think that anyone else in my extended family had left Cyprus behind to go all the way to the U.S., in order to study. So you, as you might know, Cyprus is closer to Europe. So a lot of people from Cyprus go either to the United Kingdom or to Greece or to other European countries to, to study. So um, it was a bit of a, uh, you know, a, a risk, if you like, to go abroad all the way to the, to the U.S. But I think um, absolutely with, with their support and encouragement, it, um, it, it worked out really well, I think. And can you digest information and lots of it fairly easily? Like, what's what do you like in terms of, of reading information and then you know it making sense in your head? 
Um, I think so. Uh, I mean, I always uh, enjoy absorbing and new information and learning. And I'm actually quite excited about, you know, new technologies and new ways that allow us to absorb more information. So, for instance, we now have apps that uh, rather than reading an entire book, they can give you a 20 minute summary. Or um, I actually, although at the beginning I have had problem with this uh, i actually trained myself to listen to books rather than read books or listen to audiobooks which allows me to essentially read books just by even when i'm just enjoying a walk outside so in other words i do think that in in recent years all these technologies have enabled all of us not just me to more easily and with higher availability like absorb this kind of information so that's and that's certainly something that i enjoy even what we're doing right now right podcasts that 10 years ago probably they didn't even exist but suddenly you know again you enjoy a walk outside you listen to a podcast of something that uh, um, you find of interest and again a very um, effective way of absorbing information so i think that i do my best to utilize these kinds of technologies as much as possible and in addition to the sort of traditional ways of reading a book although i do enjoy doing that sometimes like a real book as opposed to a kindle book for instance so because you're involved in a lot of boards you're doing a fair amount of consulting you know you've you've obviously got the you know the curriculum to build for your for your course that you deliver. Are you incredibly disciplined? Are you hardworking? You don't mind doing long nights in the office? Ha, you're catching me at a, very, at a very interesting phase of my life when it comes to precisely that question. I think before the pandemic, I did, I struggled, but I did manage to put some boundaries and at least achieve some type of a work-life balance. During the pandemic, though, things changed dramatically because, you know, even for the educational sector, this was a major disruption, right? We had, for instance, uh, experiential programs that couldn't run because nobody could travel. We had, you know, face-to-face electives that couldn't run. Therefore, students that had to take more electives in order to graduate. We had to overnight learn how to use uh, Zoom and other technologies in order to deliver content. We had to learn how to deliver content online and keep people engaged in two dimensions rather than three dimensions that we're used to. So all this to say that during the pandemic, in other words, the last two years, that I, I must admit how I wasn't able to maintain the balance that I wanted simply because, of course, of the extraordinary demands of the of the period that many, not all of us, um, have faced. So now I'm going, I think, through a period where I do try to put some boundaries around work because I do think that once you put boundaries, your actual working hours become much more productive. Uh, I think the late, the, the proverbial rate nights might sound like hard work, but I, I, I'm realizing more and more that they are inefficient work. In other words, the more times you devote it, the more, uh, 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 the less, sorry, efficient you become by late night. So now I try to keep it work days until six or seven, um, take weekends off and, and actually take holidays off. And believe it or not, this was in the last couple of weeks, I was, I, I did take the big step, which was to, disable email notifications and wow. and 
Not check. Yeah, that was a big one. Uh, it still is. Uh, and, and um, you know, after I shut down work to only check emails the next day and not to check emails over the weekend because, you know, before it was notifications and it, there's always emails and they all, there's always work. And, and I think it also, I found out that because the kind of work that we do is is, is mental work, right? It's, it's, it's constantly thinking and using our brain. If you do have those distractions all the time or those emails and requests coming in all the time, then you don't give your brain the necessary time that it needs to sort of regroup, rest, and come back with the, the energy and the efficiency that you need. So at some point, you have to self-discipline and and now, you know, as I said, after two years after the pandemic, uh, I am trying to go through some more self-discipline and put those boundaries in. And you're, as we record this, you're in Miami and you're on a on a sabbatical. Um, was that planned pre-pandemic or was that a result of pandemic or not related? It was an opportunity that came last year during the end of the pandemic. You know, we are, as academics, we are in a, prof- in a profession that allows us this luxury of sabbaticals. And I have taken advantage of them in the past. In the past, I went for a semester visiting at Harvard Business School. My most recent sabbatical was a semester visiting at the ESMT, which is the business school in Berlin, and I lived in Germany for a bit. So this is a luxury of the profession that I would like to, and I do take advantage of, because it allows me to get out of the routine, go to another institution, see how other departments and other business schools work, collaborate with new colleagues, meet and collaborate with new colleagues, and so on. So the sabbatical per se was certainly planned. And then the Miami came uh, as an opportunity uh, last year. So and, and so I would say that, you know, sabbaticals are always something that I, I pursue and I want to do and take advantage of. And, and Miami was an opportunity to come in. I'm actually based at the Miami Herbert, the business school at the University of Miami. So I had the chance to meet new colleagues, start some new research collaborations, uh, engage with the community even in Miami. Uh, you know, Miami is a city that... Uh, for it will certainly feel the climate change implications, both in its real estate, but also more broadly. And the city of Miami is one of the first, if not the first city in the world, I think, that actually has a chief heat officer to deal with with global warming. So um, it's been good to be here and, and, um, uh, you know, generate more experiences and more research collaborations. And you interact a lot with you know, ge- new generations, young people coming through, do they give you a great deal of hope about sustainability and, and ESG? Did, are they, you know, leading the way, taking it seriously, most engaged, driving change? Yes, they absolutely do. Uh, in my experience, especially as I get older and they get younger and the gap between us is increasing, uh, I'm realizing that for new generations and younger generations, this is this is fundamental. This is existential because these uh, issues and challenges and negative impacts that they are going to experience. So in other words, we're not talking about negative impacts of environmental and social issues to some unknown future generations in 100 years down the line. We are talking about negative impacts that are already here and they're going, that they're going to worsen much more in their lifetime. So certainly over the years, whether we 
uh, whether I look at my MBA students or actually uh, undergrads that I had the chance to teach at the University of Miami, these issues are inherently important. I don't have to argue the case. Whereas if you asked me in 2009, yeah, for some audiences, I had to argue the case about why climate change is important and why loss of biodiversity is important and so on from a business perspective. Now, um, it's not, clearly, it's not just a business perspective. It's a personal issue. That's why I think we, across the world, right, we also see uh, youth activism in, like Extinction Rebellion or also uh, um, uh, Climate for the, F- sorry, Fridays for the Future and Greta Thunberg and so on. I think that is reflects the zeitgeist and re- reflects the idea that these issues are not just scientific issues or just business issues. The, for the younger generations, these are profoundly personal issues. So I have certainly seen that shift in in the last 10, 13 years. And if you had to choose E, S or G in terms of your kind of strength and your depth of knowledge or just maybe your kind of personal interest in, what would you pin your hat on? Yeah, I wouldn't. The the issue is that um, because I have studied the ESG, if you like, especially from a business perspective, after so many years, it is more than clear to me that there's no way you can see any one of these issues in isolation. Climate change has profound implications on inequality, and inequality has profound implications about who is going to, going to suffer and who is not going to suffer climate change impacts, for example. The gap between developed and emerging economies is, is such foundational for understanding, you know, why we haven't been able to coordinate on reduction of carbon emissions and how in emerging economies, social issues are so intrinsically linked to climate issue. The whole idea of the just transition, for instance, and how we're going to go to a low carbon economy and who is going to pay for the transition is inherently a social and environmental issue. So I don't, I don't, uh, um, I wouldn't choose if you like any, E, S, and G, but rather uh, um, I would encourage everyone, uh, in fact, to see these as hugely interdependent system-level problems and that we cannot pick and choose to our liking which one we're going to solve and which one we're not. We need to attack, if you like, all of them at the same time and, and, and um, attack the root causes of this system that has essentially generated all of these challenges. Right. And in terms of your own behaviours, your own on a micro level, do you find sustainability sort of front of mind as you go about your life, the, the car you drive, the, you know, the behaviours you have day to day? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I do my best. So uh, I'll give you a couple of examples, right? I haven't, I don't own a car. I've never owned a car. Um, you know, I don't think you need one in London. I always look, use public transportation, even in Miami that practically there is no public transportation. I still try to either walk or um, uh, or, or use the, 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 the metro whenever I can. I have switched my diet, um, started switching my diet to more of uh, the plant-based alternatives. I'm very conscious about my use of electricity, my use of water, and so on. Um, I, I try to, uh, but I think, you know, I would think, I want to think that most of my, to the extent that I do have some impact, it does come through my research, my teaching, and what I do in terms of 
of work over and above the personal. Don't get me wrong. I think the personal is very important and we need to change behaviors. But I'm a big fan of the approach uh, that says that, you know, we shouldn't confuse personal responsibility with system levels of responsibility. So for instance, if you, were, if you were to ask me, what is the most important thing that I can do as an individual to contribute to a sustainable world? Well, the first and foremost that I would tell you is to vote because we need the right people to vote the right rules and regulations that define the rules of the game that allow us to bring systems level change for instance right it, it wouldn't be me telling you turn off the lights at night or drive an electric vehicle i would prioritize system level change and and i think this approach has been quite advocated by professor michael mann in in pennsylvania he's a climate scientist that actually um, highlighted this distinction between individual and systems level responsibility. For instance, and this is the striking example, you know that the first uh, calculator that allowed you to see your carbon, carbon footprint, right? Well, it was set up by BP, the oil and gas company. Yeah. Um, because in a sense, the deflection of responsibility to the individual allows for the existing status quo at the system level to be maintained. And what we really need for large-scale change is systems-level change. That doesn't mean that the individual is, is neglected. It's a necessary, but it's by no means sufficient condition for systems change. And I would say that for everyone that's interested in sustainability, we need to understand that each one of us wears different hats. First, I would, maybe this is subjective, I would prioritize us, the individual, as a citizen. Hence why I believe that voting for the right people in the right places is so fundamental. But then we can think of each of us as a consumer in terms of the, uh, we vote every day with our pocket, essentially, in terms of which companies we choose to buy products for. And we work for companies. So we, we also vote with our feet when we decide which company to work for and whether we work for companies that align with their personal values and their personal norms and their personal impact. We also vote with how we choose to invest our pensions and where we choose to invest our savings. And therefore, we act as investors. So we have multiple hats on that we can, we meaning every one of us can leverage, right? Um, and, and we have a choice about how to devote our time, join an NGO, become an activist, contribute to civil society kind of discourse on sustainability issues. So there is many ways, I think, on an individual level. Of course, one person cannot do everything, but different people can have different types of impact, and all of them are necessary if we're ever going to, to move towards this more sustainable um, future that hopefully all desire. Yeah, wonderful. Great advice. Um, and just uh, before we wrap up, I just want to cover off a few quick fire questions, if I might. Um, sure. Outdoors or gym? Uh, gym, for sure. Person you most admire and would like to share some food with, dead or alive? A couple. I would definitely say Bill Gates and maybe Elon Musk as well. Favorite device? Device. <laughs> um, it has to be my iPad. And your favorite food? Oh, that's that's a, that's a difficult one because 
actually, you know, Mark, I'm always on the seafood diet, which means I eat whatever I see. Uh, and I do not discriminate. <laughs> I'm on the same diet. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I would say, though, that uh, I, I mean, uh, I am maybe I'm going through a phase, but I am developing an addiction to impossible burgers. I don't know why. Maybe it's just a phase. <laughs> but I, that's, that's, that's the flavor of the month, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, a similar transition to you uh, trying to consume less meat uh, and, and more. Um, I'm actually sort of doing more seafood, but yeah, impossible burgers are good. Yep. I've heard that. <laughs> and just before we wrap up, you kind of, Hope for the world, hope for the future. Big question, I know. My, I, I do. I mean, there are days where I become, where I wake up and I'm optimistic, and there are ways, there are days where I wake up and I become uh, pessimistic. So I oscillate, to be honest with you, because in my work and meeting new generations, I do see the hope and the drive and the motivation to really build a better world. But on the other, on the other hand, I do see corruption, political failure, and what's happening in the world right now as we speak, right? The invasion of Russia into Ukraine that, that uh, in addition to all the other devastating impacts, might actually turn the clock back on climate change given the energy crisis that it's going to cause and, and is causing already and so on. Um, I try to remain optimistic. I try to sort of think and visualize a world where, you know, eventually uh, uh, stars will align and we'll be able to, for instance, uh, make considerable progress towards the sustainable development goals and build a world in which we all want to live in. So I just, uh, my hope, uh, therefore, is that, in a sense, the good things of the world and the good people of the world will eventually, you know, uh, dominate the bad things of the world and get us to that more sustainable future that we all deserve. Um, I, again, with the caveat that I believe that on most days, but not all of them. <laughs> Wonderful. And yeah, that's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much for joining Purposely and um, good luck with the rest of your sabbatical and um, look forward to meeting you in the future. Thank you very much for having me, Mark. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do.